Welcome to the Untoxicated Podcast. <laughs> well, I'm Sherry Salis, and that was my husband, Matt. We have questions about the impact of alcohol and addiction on relationships. If you have those kinds of questions, too, you're in the right place. Here we go. Catherine's really doing a great job running the developing story. Don't you think, Sherry? I think so. We got to sit in on an open session that we ran at the end of, or the beginning of November, pardon me, and we got to listen to her give the prompt and kind of facilitate the call, the video call. There were some parents on there. There were some kids on there. There was you and me on there and our brilliant daughter, Catherine. The developing story is our writing group via Zoom, online writing group for teenagers or, you know, I think we're kind of leaning toward also young 20s, -hmm. people in that kind of zone who have experienced alcoholism in the household and are trying to process what that was like. And and we have learned the power of community in doing that, sharing your experiences and realizing you're not alone, does a lot for people. And our daughter, Catherine, who's facilitating the developing stories, doing an outstanding job. So I just wanted to kick off this episode by reminding our listeners of the existence of that program. Um, you know, it, I, I, it, it, we've had, honestly, a little bit slower start than we had hoped as far as participation. But I think it's really hard for kids to come to the come to grips with the fact that they've got trauma and they need to process it and they can do it now or they can do it later in life. Um, but we're definitely going to stick with it because Catherine's doing an awesome job and she's really helping the people that are in the group. So if you are considering being a part of the developing story, we hope you'll check it out and consider registering. Go to thedevelopingstory.org for more information and the very first step in the enrollment process. That first step is not a commitment. You can make that you know, first kind of inquiry, and we will walk you through the process and get all of your questions answered. Really excited to see where this thing goes. And hopefully we'll have another open session, because I want to do it again. Yeah. It was fun. It was fun. Sherry, you ready fun. for a listener question? Sure. Um, okay, here we go. The topic of this person's email, you know, I should say, I should preface this by saying, when we get listener questions... It's very rare that the, that there's one sentence with a question mark at the end of it. Usually there's quite a bit of background and explanation, which is great. Um, but I don't want to read the... And I, I almost never read the whole email. I, I usually set it up a little bit and then read the question. So the topic of this particular email was detachment. Um, this is somebody who uh, was working on boundaries and detachment and her husband um, was, I think, I can't remember honestly, I think was still drinking, definitely exhibited the traits of a high-functioning alcoholic. Maybe they were toying with sobriety or trying for sobriety, but early on, if, if that. Um, but they, so she had questions about detachment and how it worked in our relationship. So here is her actual question, just keeping in mind where this person is in their the process of their recovery. She says, Do you think that Sherry's presence, at least, was enough to keep you on track, even if she had her own path to follow recovery-wise? Do you think that Sherry's presence, at least, was enough to keep you on track, even if she had her own path to follow recovery-wise? This is somebody who had listened to 
the uh, trilogy of podcast episodes that we did about separation. Mm-hmm. And um, so uh, I think it's a super excellent question. And here we are putting out three podcast episodes about separation, but we never separated. We were always still in the same house, even if not emotionally or mentally, uh, even if the connection was really strained. We were still physically together. Yes, we were. Um, I had a thought and it just escaped me. Um, I th- Well, I was going to say I thought that was really interesting because the first thing that popped into my mind was... I think it would really depend on the individual. Like, I think for you, it did matter that I was there. Yeah. Because I think you were... Because you you felt that pain of me detaching and then the, like... Not so much, like, giving up, but, you know, just kind of, like, going on without you. And you weren't necessarily included. I didn't want to hear what you had to say. I mean, I say... Things like, we say things like, I just didn't care anymore. I mean, I cared, but I exhibited traits where I didn't care. Um, what you were doing wasn't bothering me. I think if I were removed from the house for you, I think that would have been a little bit easier for you to slip into. And I and maybe it was because you were just more codependent with me at that point. Definitely. I think there are some people that maybe they do need to have separation in as part of their detachment, you know, um, and recovery process because they're too toxic together. It just didn't work out for us because we had a business and our own business with multiple locations and kids and, you know. I think that's a great setup for how I kind of wanted to address this question. It's almost like you and I talked before we hit the record Which button and planned this. does not happen. Yeah, not at all. I mean... I take notes, but you are flying by the seat of your pants, and you just, you nailed it. Um, There are lots of cute and cliche descriptions out there about sobriety and recovery. Most of them make me cringe, and I just don't like mantras in general. But this is one that I do like, and it's about hitting your rock bottom. I don't, honestly, I've heard it many, many times in the recovery community. I don't know who to attribute it to originally, But the saying is, your rock bottom is when you stop digging and start climbing. And there is an individualism to this. As much as we talk a lot about universalisms, the progressive nature of the disease, the gaslighting, the way it affects us, all of that is, there are universalisms, but there is some individuality to it as well. And we've quoted many times Jason Polk, the gentleman who started the podcast with me did the first eight, eight episodes and then came back again later and appeared on the podcast as an expert witness as a because mm-hmm. uh, he's a therapist a couples therapist as well as an addiction therapist and he taught me something during those first eight episodes he taught me that there's only one reason that people make fundamental big time changes in their lives and it's because they are in enough pain it's not enough that the people around them are in pain, they themselves have to be in enough pain. So when I think about our specific situation, because that's what this listener question is about, do I think that you still being around was important to keep me on track? I think about the things that we went through. 
you know, we talk like we're some kind of experts on recovery. Just a reminder to our listeners, we are not therapists or psychologists. We just have a lot of lived experience. And part of that lived experience is 10 years of relapses. So, I mean, we sit here on our high and mighty throne now with all this sobriety and all this, all these epiphanies around sobriety. But here's where my, um, my imposter syndrome comes out. I, of course, we have to remember that for 10 years, I tried and failed to get sober. And that 10 years is a long time in comparison to a lot of people we meet. I mean, that's on the long end of the spectrum yeah. for ter- trying yeah, to get sobriety. You, you acknowledged that your drinking had gotten out of hand. Yeah. And it took you 10 years to finally get to the point where you can maintain sobriety. Yeah. But it's important to... Ups and downs, for sure. Ups and downs, for sure. But let's define what those downs are. It's important to recognize that in our case, I did not have legal problems. And that was by luck or the grace of God or whatever it was. It wasn't because I never drove when I shouldn't. Um, And that wasn't because I never did any other dumb things either. Uh, But for whatever reason, we had no legal problems, no job loss, no infidelity, uh, no financial collapse. Certainly, I spent way more money, and I wish I had the money back that I spent, not only on alcohol, but on dumb decisions while drinking, like ordering stuff off of you know a TV commercial or, or spending money on food or whatever. Um, but no financial collapse, just lots of money spent, and no estrangement. Uh, we didn't you know, break off ties with any other family members outside of our household as a result of my 10 years of active addiction. So those things, legal problems, job loss, infidelity, those things are not part of my pain concoction. That's the term I've chosen to Ooh, use that's a, yeah. in this, in this because everyone's got a different concoction. Right, for sure. So when we talk about Jason's advice or Jason's theory, which I think is true, which is um, people only make change when they have, when the pain of not changing is more than the pain of changing. So the pain is what causes the change. The pain concoction for me was a, a mental health crisis of depression, anxiety, and OCD. And that's part one. And part two was your detachment, your emotional kind of mental communication detachment. Mm-hmm. You didn't move out. You didn't kick me out. You didn't kick me out because you knew I wouldn't go. I'm one of those stubborn drunks that would have said, uh, let's yeah. let's go pull a copy of the mortgage and see whose names are on it. And let's see if I'm going to be leaving or not. Yeah. I mean, that's the, the size of the asshole that I was. Yes. I would not have left. Yes. I'm not alone. I admire I, I admire the people that we meet where, that do like leave whenever the, they see the, the alcoholic that it is, is yeah just cordial and respectful enough to leave. I was not respectful. Yeah, enough to leave. and you were also a follower, um, so that's why I verbally stopped engaging very much too. Was I wasn't going to give you any ammunition. I wasn't going to give you anything really yeah. to continue a conversation because I didn't know where it would go, and you know. So yeah. like closed off and withheld. Yeah. Yeah. So among the many universalisms that we see in active addiction and early sobriety and long-term sobriety on both sides of the fence, this distinction, this is one of the things that separates each example. And one of the reasons that hearing people's story is actually interesting. If everything was universal, 
then gosh, this work that we do would get awful boring awful fast because everyone would be telling the exact same story. But there are differences, and it is your pain concoction. Alcoholism is a progressive disease, and so is the reaction of the loved one. That reaction is progressive as well. And so let's talk through some of the steps in that progression that usually take place. Sometimes that emotional detachment, sometimes the emotional detachment is enough. It was in our case. That was enough for me to get sober when combined with the anxiety, the depression, and the OCD flare that I was suffering from. Mm -hmm. So you put all that together, mix it up, and um, that was enough incentive, enough pain for me to get sober. Um, Also, something that happens in the progression in an alcoholic relationship, sometimes sex gets cut off. Often, it's by the loved one, by the spouse. Sometimes, it's the alcoholic themselves. Their self-esteem gets so low that they just can't... You know, I, I guess I can't explain that one completely because that is that was not our experience. I think it does have something to do with what we've termed as the uh, rejection inherent in, uh, in consent... And what I mean by that is that unenthusiastic consent, which is what we did experience, where you were willing but not excited. You would, you know, you would engage in sexual contact with me to keep me quiet and get me to go to sleep and not stay up all night and argue and not wake up the kids and things like that. Really disgusting. Not disgusting on your part, disgusting on my part. But I, I could feel it. You know, I could feel that you were willing but not into it. And that hurt. And so I think sometimes the sex gets cut out of the relationship, often, like I said, by the spouse. But sometimes it's by the alcoholic. And I think one of the reasons is, you know, they can tell it's a one-way street and that hurts. Yeah. Don't you think? Yeah. And then another progression that I wrote on my little list of progressions, sometimes... Uh, physical detachment is the next step in the depression. And by physical detachment, I mean actually moving, like separating, whether temporary or you just decide to go through the divorce. But either way, that living in separate places is sometimes what it takes for that pain concoction to be right to inspire the drinker to seek sobriety. Mm -hmm. But sometimes that's not enough either. We know lots of cases where all of these things have happened. Emotionally, they've detached. The sex has stopped. Someone, one of the two, has moved out. And the relationship is still a mess. And the drinking continues. So trying to find that pain point where you stop digging and start climbing and look for sobriety. It makes me think of the bliss point. You know what the bliss point is? No. That's what all these processed food companies i watch Uh, a lot more food documentaries than you do yeah that's my like side yes angry passion yeah but the bliss point is like between the chemical fake flavors and the sugar content they try to mix it just right to get you know the the right addictive combination basically i think it started with dr pepper i think that's the first time the bliss point was used you know, a little more sugar. Oh, no, 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 a little less sugar. Yeah, that's perfect. And oh, is that why I like Dr. Pepper so much? Yeah, because it's hit the bliss point. It <sighs> has 
the the highest percentage of the population finds that flavor to and sugar combo to be like addictive basically it's weird i never liked i mean i liked it but it's like my taste buds may have changed you know how they say that it they regenerate over seven years you mature my uh, they just well i don't just know adjust yeah but uh yeah that's my new like like little you know dr pepper dr pepper is gotta have some dp if i'm feeling a little down or run down and feel like i need a little sugar caffeine treat it used to always be coca-cola but it's been dr pepper in a while so i must they hit my bliss point i feel like i don't even know you <laughs> i didn't know that yeah huh. I, I don't know it's just been the last like couple of years interesting mm-hmm. yeah dr pepper was always my little guilty pleasure yeah, Mr. Pibb was terrible. I See, I think they taste the same. I have no problem. I'm sure it's going to be Pibb, like that. Dr. This is the Coke Pepsi challenge with Dr. Pepper and Mr. Pibb. This... I can't think of anything I'm less interested in doing. <laughs> yeah. I just don't care. Yeah. But the point is, yes. there's this combination of so it's the flavors opposite. and sugars that hit you right in the sweet spot. And yeah, kind of the opposite. There's a combination of factors that converge and and create the pain that'll get you to make the change yeah and it's different for everybody which is unfortunate and that's what i always like as you were talking about that and i'll be brief because i know we want to get on with the rest of the podcast but you know when you have those those partners the um one with the alcohol use disorder that doesn't want to leave that says i need you to be here to support me and even when you are there to support them and they don't do a fucking thing they don't do anything to get healthy and better you're like i can see how that would be so tormenting to be the 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 sober partner that's like oh well they said they need me but they're not doing anything you know so that's twisted because that person doesn't even know you know, the person with the alcohol use disorder doesn't even know really what they need. Are you able to read my notes upside down from across this microphone? No. Balanced I, on my knee here so you really angle-wise can't even see the paper? Yeah, I just... You are magic. I'm just reading Did you have mind. a Dr. Pepper today or something? <laughs> Not enough, apparently. You are good. Um, yeah, th- that's exactly kind of the point I wanted to make. There's, There's things like, you know... Looking up rehab information for your partner who says they, they're they willing to get sober. Or, you know, reassuring us when we're in an emotional wreck state, you know, crying, depressed, no self, not low self-esteem, no self-esteem, sad for the mess we've made of our lives, just full of regret. And you can come and reassure and, you know, and comfort me and tell me all the the ways that I am a decent human and that there are good things in our lives and reaffirming your commitment. You know, one of the things when you're feeling really low as an active alcoholic or someone in really early sobriety is you start to wonder about how, if the marriage is going to last and whether you really love me and something that just is so natural that the, the loved ones of the alcoholic can do is to support through these kinds of emotional things. You can tell me, yes, Matt, I do love you. And yes, I want to be with you forever. And I'm not going anywhere. And you are a good man. And, and you know, look at the, these good things and start listing the good things in life. And let me, let me help you with support. Have you considered this program or this program or this program or this program or this program? And look them all up and 
get you know the addresses and check the insurance and see what it'll cover. You can do all of that stuff. And it's natural because you, Sherry, are the epitome of a nurturer. You are a great example of what we find so typical from the loved ones of alcoholics. You just have this innate desire to be helpful and to fix the problem. And while all of that is natural, none of it's helpful because none of it is increasing the pain. None of it is working toward that pain concoction. Mm-hmm. Now, I think we should have a little little caveat here. I mean, I think there are cases of just severe, severe depression where, um, you know, you as a loved one might be really worried about what's going to happen. Right. You know, they talk, when when the debate is about antidepressants or more natural means of dealing with uh, depression, I've heard doctors say, you know, I, I had to save the life first. So we, we went on the antidepressants and then we'll work on everything else. But the first, first we're in complete life-threatening crisis. So we got to address that first. And I know that there are cases like that, certainly cases like that, in alcoholism. But in our case, where I was still relatively high functioning, like I said, I listed all the things that hadn't happened, job loss, legal problems, infidelity, etc. Um, in the in that case, it is not helpful to do the thing that comes most naturally for you. Um, reassuring and comforting and looking into rehab information. When you think back on it, how out of character would it have been for you until see here that's the thing about this progressive nature of it for you too you did all those things those loving supportive nurturing things until you were done and then you didn't do them anymore but that wasn't because you read it in a book you just you reached your tipping point right yeah um you know and i know like a lot of the times when you did try to get sober um before this last time that's you know nearly gosh you're gonna come up on seven years here um, you know, there would be strong... seven's like one of my favorite numbers, so I'm gonna stop counting at seven. Okay, I'm just gonna say seven plus. Okay, um, like you, you would throw back in my face, like, oh, you're not doing enough, or, or you're stressing me out more. You know, even when I felt like I was trying to either relieve some burden, like I think I still had those little pieces of my memory still, like, well, I did that, and he didn't care, he didn't acknowledge, or when I tried to go about like play the like let's just go about our lives and act like you know we just don't have alcohol in there i remember like driving to go to the um i don't remember if it was either to like an amusement park or skiing i think both of those times were incidences where you were like i'm trying to be sober here and you're not helping you know you were so upset because i like brought something that made you more stressful or you know, I wasn't maybe as nice as I could be. So I was like, shit, it's like I'm damned if I do and damned if I don't. You know, I'm just playing by your rules. So I think I was like calculating and keeping track of all of that. So then my last, yeah, like there's only so, so much a person can do. And I, like you said, I didn't read it in a book. I didn't know anything about it. I just kind of went with my natural instincts of like, I don't know what I can do here. All I can do is I don't want to give him any more, you know. I don't want to be in relationship in the way that he wants to be in relationship anymore because it's not working anyhow. So, okay, so it wasn't so much that that your detachment, 
your natural, not book read, but natural detachment came from um, a lack of caring, but so much as it was, you had tried all of the nurturing stuff. Yeah, I did the supportive stuff. I did the act like we don't do it. I, I mean, I... You know, I tried to like let you go on with life and tell you about all the normal stressors that were going on. Or if I was pissy, I would let you know why I was pissy. You know, trying to just live the normal life. But you couldn't, but in your attempts at sobriety, when you were struggling with that, you weren't able to manage the normalcy of like real reactions from me. But also the comforting and all that didn't work either. So it was like, for you, it was... Less you're at the end of your rope. Um, you were willing to try more things. You just run out of things. Yeah. Like that pop culture definition of insanity, doing the same thing over and over and expecting different results. You were just too smart for that and recognized. I wouldn't say I was too smart. Well, I would. It, but I think you're really smart. You recognized doing this dance isn't working. I'm going to yeah. stop doing the dance. And I mean, you know, probably just because I had like had experience with alcoholism in my childhood and upbringing and my um, so you've been sisters dancing for a long time and my sister's spouses so i knew that there was i mean in the back of my mind i knew it didn't really matter what i was going to do it was going to have to come down to you yeah we hear a lot from a lot of people things like i love him he needs me how could i possibly hurt him and to that you know i i think it's helpful as outside observers when we hear about situations, we can process it in a non-emotional way because we aren't in that relationship. Mm-hmm. And so I look at relationships when we hear these stories, these really traumatic stories, and I think traumatic but high-functioning. Don't get me wrong. I'm not talking about physical abuse or sexual abuse. I'm talking about the things that high-functioning alcoholic families live through. You know, I think he has broken the sacred commitment of the marriage, you know, broken that mutual protection agreement. He has become the most dangerous part of your life. You owe him the respect to demand he holds up his end of the bargain. The progressive nature of the disease is, I I feel like we've used a lot of cliches already in this episode, but again, it's, here's another one. It's, it's the frog that's in the water and doesn't realize he's boiling because the temperature goes up so slowly. I mean, that's what these relationships are all about. And so I, as your husband, my behavior deteriorated slowly over time to the point where you were afraid of me. You weren't so much physically afraid of me as you were just completely emotionally afraid of what version of me you were going to get. The inconsistency was the, was was what triggered that fear. Yeah. Because there was no consistency in the relationship. And that is very scary and very fearful because you don't know what's to come. Well, but I'll take that one step further. You don't know which mood I'm going to be in. Maybe I'm playful. Maybe I'm having fun. Maybe I'm moody. Maybe I'm angry. All that. But not only that, but you also couldn't talk me out of any of those moods. Oh, yeah. So if I was grumpy, you couldn't say, hey, Matt, you know, it's whatever. It's Sunday afternoon. The sun's shining. Um, you know, we don't have any chores to do or whatever. Can, you know, why are you so grumpy? Can you bring it down a notch? You're scaring the kids or you're you're not enjoying time with the kids. You couldn't say any of that. No. I mean, now you could, right? Now, yeah. if I was just 
if I was grumpy about something, you could say, you know, all right, you can be that way if you want, but look at all these things you have going for you. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, and how about if you spend a little better family time than that? And I would, whether I snapped out of it or not, I would be receptive to that. Back when I was drinking, I would have yelled at you for talking to me that way. Yeah. You would have been very snappy and, yeah. So, so that's, you know, when I, when we hear these stories, I think that last point is kind of an important one. You know, you as the loved one, you owe him the respect. Eh, I'm sure we're going to get pushed back on that. Maybe that's not the right way to say that. You owe him the respect to demand he hold up his end of the deal. Uh, maybe that's, that's kind of manipulative the way that, I say it. Yeah, it but is. you owe yourself the I was respect. Gonna say, it's you owe yourself the respect to ask for what is a basic, you know, part of a relationship. Yeah. The basic needs, the, a basic, um, you know, piece. And if of the if your alcoholic can't live up to that, then that's where the detachment needs to go to the next step further, whatever that is in your own case. Mm-hmm. Add a little pain to the concoction. Listen, we've seen cases where detachment done well didn't work. The alcoholic kept drinking. The marriage dissolved. Sometimes even more tragic things happened. Yeah. But we've also seen cases, and we've lived a case, where the pain concoction got mixed up just right, the detachment worked, the alcoholic found sobriety, and eventually, after years of sobriety and recovery, then the relationship started to recover as well. I mean, I guess... But, hang on, let me make this one point. We have never... I can't think of a single case where the loved one just kept giving and giving and giving and looking up rehab information and loving all over the alcoholic and telling them they're going to be okay. I've never seen that work. Can you think of a time? I can't think of a time. The only thing I was just, it's kind of funny that you mentioned that, was because I was just thinking the only way that I feel like maybe the support works, and maybe this is just a once or twice um, that you do this, but... The reminder that not every recovery program works for every person to keep trying and to kind of instill the growth mindset of like, you know, if you can't find it here, let's go look there. So maybe it is like instead of giving them every time they fall off the wagon, like here's another resource. Like if you felt like you wanted to do the research and the resource, you know, gathering, like write it all down and say, here's a list. Yeah. Check it off yourself. But remember, it's not going to work. And I'm not going to say it's not going to work if you don't work it. Not everything is going to work for every person. Yeah. I mean, you can't say everybody goes to AA and it's going to do the 12 steps and they're healed. And also because that's a gamble within itself because of the just the dynamics of the groups that you might go to and the meetings you guys might go to. Yeah. So just the only thing I think that I feel like a, a that could be a support thing is to keep saying to your partner that has an issue with alcohol or drugs or any other addiction is to say, you just got to keep doing it and you got to keep going to different and try different things. Try a different, you know, combination of whether it's, an AA meeting and smart recovery or a support group or exercise and, you know, another, you know, recovery elevator or whatever. 
Yeah, I mean, I think that works See, very well into the concept of demanding <laughs> that you be treated with respect as the loved one. Don't let them give the cop-out answer. I, you know, I went to AA. I went to three different AAs. I went to 10 different meetings, and it's just not a good fit. Don't let that be the cop-out. I think I, you're right. There are literally hundreds of recovery programs out there in the big bad world now through the the magic of the internet and just what we've you know gained in understandings of how brain chemistry works and there's just a ton of different and things you can a try. Podcasts and stuff, and I think. And so if you try one or two things or five or seven things and they don't work and you give up, well, you're letting down your your family and, and yourself. I, yeah, and I think that you're just being an example of of being respectful in the relationship, respecting yourself, that, and respecting your partner and saying, I don't want you to give up, and I don't want to give up on you, and I don't know how you can give up when you have all these resources at your fingertips. Yeah. And and that's that's just respecting the relationship, respecting yourself, and respecting your partner with the addiction. Yeah. Yeah, agreed. I mean, because there were times where I mentioned... You know, like AA or talking to someone, or you know, and you always you always batted down the ideas. And I didn't do a lot of research. I mean, one of the first books that I feel like we ever really that kind of clicked was when it was talking about the brain chemistry thing mm-hmm. for you. You know, and it was, and also like, do you have an addiction or an abuse problem? Because then that, I don't know if that just kind of made you feel a little better. Like, do I abuse alcohol to cover up problems or am I really addicted? Like, is there an addiction there? So that was kind of the first little introduction that I felt like just kind of opened the door. Because then it made you curious. Yeah. Then to do more research. And then when we learned about the brain chemistry, that's kind of really what caught you a little bit. Yeah. I mean, I think one of the things we've learned in that (laughs) regard is if you are... On the internet to find, try to figure out if you have a alcohol problem, you have an alcohol problem. Yeah. Like that's, that's definitely falls into the universalism category. People who are in control of their drinking don't research whether or not they have an alcohol problem. Right. But remember, you are all arrogant. And thinking you can control it and it's false arrogance. Thinking. Absolutely. Yeah. You know. Yeah. I thought I was going to be. So you wanted to pretend that you wanted to point it out. I don't have a problem. I just like to drink. Yeah. You know. Yeah. So funny coming up on seven years to hear that. Like, that's such a disgusting thing to say to me. Like, not that you said that to me. I mean, that's a disgusting thing for me to think of myself as saying, I just like to drink. Mm -hmm. I just like to poison my brain. It's so awesome. (laughs) Give me the drain out. It's amazing how long you can come. Yeah. Or how far you can come and, you know, just uh, shade under a decade. Um, So... The kind of last thing I want to hit on, there was a really big turning point for me, and I can't overstate how important this is. And it's when I stopped looking at things I didn't like about you as your part of the problem. Again, another universalism. When we hear people's stories, there it's such an immediate reaction of the drinker to say, yeah, maybe I drink too much, but... Let's talk about your side of the street. Let's talk about all the things that you do. Let's talk about how intolerant you are and how demanding you are and what a control freak you are. Well, these are all traits that you, Sherry, you loved one of the alcoholic. 
you have brought to the forefront of your personality because you're trying to survive gaslighting and trying to walk on eggshells and trying to uh, survive the moodiness that you just described. So they, so yes, these are characteristics that are perhaps unsavory. You know, you constantly looking on my shoulder to see how much I'm drinking or talking about how my behavior is impacting the kids. Maybe I would like you to get off my back. But maybe you're on my back because you're trying to protect your family and trying to protect yourself. Mm-hmm. And so when it gets thrown back up into your face, let's talk about your side of the street. Let's talk, let's talk about your dad who was an alcoholic, Sherry, and what that did to you. Let's talk about your mom's two divorces. Let's talk about all that. It's definitely gaslighting. I never did it, and I don't think anyone ever does it because they're mean or evil. They do it, yeah, what was the word you just used? Deflection. Deflection. Not intentional deflection, though, either. I just, I kind of think you're a bitch, and let's talk about it. Yeah. Well, you're a bitch because you're trying to defend yourself. Trying to keep it all together and protect the family. And that's a point where alcohol has changed both of you. Absolutely. So keep that in mind when you have that, when you're in that situation and they want you to clean up your side of the street because they maybe maybe there's a point like where they're like well if you clean up your side of the street then maybe i'll go clean up mine well like because that's just quid pro quo that's bullshit yeah so so back to the point the turning point for me that i can't overstate how important it is when i stopped looking at things that way when i stopped pointing out things that you needed to fix and started to wonder what made you react that way why are you all up in my business about X, Y, or Z? Why are you so worried about the impact of the kids just hanging out with me on a Sunday afternoon? You know, why are you so concerned about bringing the chicken inside as opposed to letting me grill it outside? Like, what's your beef? What's the deal? So rather than considering you to be a nag, I started to really get curious. Who hurt you? What makes you react that way? What experience is causing this in you? And was this me? Or was this something before me? And that curiosity and empathy is a game changer. And it's really hard to get to. And I don't want to pretend that I came to this epiphany when I was still drinking or even early on sobriety. It took a lot of recovery work and a lot of water under the bridge and time before I started to look at the traits about you that were naggy. And bitchy and um, stuff I didn't like. And rather than blame you and tell you, you need to go work on that. You in therapy, go work on that. And started to say, okay, where's that coming from? There's there's a real big benefit, I think, in, in recovery or just in the human experience and recognizing that the people that we interact with, they aren't born evil. They aren't born mean. They aren't born, born narcissists. They aren't born bipolar. These are something happens to make people the way that they are. And having curiosity and empathy as opposed to just kind of getting mad and reacting is a really helpful thing. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah. Well, I think that's the. That's just kind of what you learned in your recovery, and we often coin it as discovery was because you want people to allow and love you and give you grace for your flaws and errors and being human as a, you know, and your human experience. You also get out of that sort of false self-confidence and that arrogance to give that to others. 
to allow grace for others because not everyone is going to behave or react or, or have the same opinion as you, but allowing them to be individuals, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's really hard. I mean, I, uh, you know, it's hard to like acknowledge that we have flaws and I will say like, you know, some of the, some of the 12 steps, that's part of it. You know, one, I forget what they're, one of their slogans, I know they've got the serenity prayer, but it's also like accepting others for who they are and the place they are and still giving grace. Cause you're right. Like people aren't born, but when incidents to be evil or mean or hurt and, um, as incidents happen, we get battle scars. Yeah. Trauma. Yeah. Now we experience trauma and it changes us to tie this all together, to tie the team, the themes that we've talked about all together. I got to the point eventually where I stopped expecting you to support me because I recognized how wounded you were. And I didn't recognize it in a way that I'm like, go fix yourself. But I recognized it with, again, you know, with empathy and curiosity. And by stopping expecting you to support me and to be my solution, um, that helps in a number of ways. There are there's a couple of main reasons why you can't be my caregiver. You can't be responsible for my support. You have to get away out of the way and let the pain concoction get to the point where I can find health myself. The two reasons you can't be my caregiver, number one is you were the number one victim of my alcoholism. And I say alcoholism as opposed to the victim of me because you and I have spent a lot of time working on and talking about separating the disease from the person. So I, when I think about it today, I don't think, oh, Sherry was a victim of me. Matt, you know, hurt her. I think, I mean, sometimes I think that way. But, but by and large, I think you were a victim of alcoholism just like I was. And since you were the number one victim of my alcoholism, you're not in a position to help me. Imagine... You know, there's a car accident and, you know, I'm driving one car and, and everyone in my car is fine, but somebody in the other car is injured. They're not going to turn to me for support and I'm not going to turn to them to try to be their support system. That's just not how it works. Um, so if if you were the number one victim of my disease, um, for me to expect you as the victim of this thing to be my caregiver, that's just illogical. Agree? Yes. And so the number two reason that Sherry can't be my caregiver is, as Esther Perel says, my favorite, my darling Esther. She says, you can't be my, you can't be my mom and my lover at the same time. That just doesn't work. So if I want intimacy, if I think emotional and physical intimacy is an important part of our relationship recovery and our long-term marriage satisfaction. And I do. I think it's important. I got to fix myself. I, and it doesn't have to just be me, me, me internally. I have to go out and find a group to be a part of. I've got to find ways to not only receive, but also give support. I've got to be part of a network where I'm contributing and I'm also receiving help. I've got to de design my program. 
whether that's just follow the 12 steps and do AA or go out and look at some of the many, many, many other options out there, our Shout Sobriety program being one of them, but look at the many, many other options out there to get healthy and do that on my own without dragging you into it Um, because you can't be my mom and my lover at the same time. And for one of our listeners who likes to make fun of me whenever I mention Esther Perel, I don't want to leave off that Esther Perel is a Belgian-American psychotherapist because that's for you, Jane. Jane loves it when I give the full full title. Yes. Do you think I did wrong by saying her name? I mean, Jane's a pretty common name. Mm-hmm. That's okay, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. I also want to mention that you made me laugh earlier when you were like, I'll... Make this point and then get on to it because I know you I didn't realize to get on to the that rest was the whole podcast. I didn't realize it was the whole podcast. The question was the whole podcast. This is how much we prepare and communicate. I, Even though we I've talk got about six communi- pages of notes, I prepared. Well, I'm saying as much as we talk about communication between ourselves, some of these things just slip by in our in our relationship. I like it when I put you on the spot and see what you're going to say because it's just proof that. You're, you've got a great memory. You're a deep thinker. All of this stuff that you've experienced is right there. It's still right there for you. You can access it really easily. Hmm. Makes me sad sometimes that it's so close to the surface for you, but it also makes it so you don't have to do any research. You can just sit down and talk. Good for you. Thanks. Dr. Pepper, your bliss point. I also want to mention that um, our listeners maybe at the beginning of the podcast heard the sound that sounded like a beer bottle opening and I want to apologize for that that was just me taking the lid off the old soda stream bottle yes. I usually do it before we hit record but I forgot and it yeah. made the tsst sound yeah sorry if that triggered anybody yeah yeah alright it is it is a very triggering sound yeah I thought of that when you opened that I went you fool you forgot to open before we started recording do you think I should edit out all this just rambling that we've done here at the end of the podcast probably hmm. Before you go, we hope you'll consider these three resources. If you love or loved an alcoholic, we offer support and connection in our Echoes of Recovery group. Check us out at echoesofrecovery.org. If you are a high-functioning alcoholic seeking methods and connection in early sobriety, we're ready for you at shoutsobriety.org. No matter who you are, there's something for you in our book, Sober Evolution, Evolve into Sobriety and Recover Your Alcoholic Marriage. Go to SoberEvolution.org. For my wife, Sherry Salis, I'm Matt Salis. Thanks for listening to the Untoxicated Podcast.